Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition with The Way with Anoa. Thank you all for continuing to rock with Listen, Finally got my iTunes workaround. Not perfect. Accidentally doubled some episodes, but you know, your girl is still here. If anybody listening has any experience or would like to take a stab at helping me with editing and managing the podcast, definitely drop me a line, hit me up. Um, Could always use you know, volunteer support. I mean, that's how we do this stuff with the movement. Really excited for upcoming work with Project South around some communications and movement journalism, exploring some of their work around those concepts um, as they continue and round out the end of their Southern People's Power organizing tour, which just left Mississippi and will be in Tampa next month. It's a lot going on. I'm really excited for... Uh, a lot of the work that is happening, we're going into a midterm election cycle and there is a lot of focus on getting black and brown voters out and, you know, electoral engagement. But I submit and I challenge everyone from, you know, your more mainstream organizations to our, you know, beloved DSA that we need to be thinking about what does it mean to actually build collective power and opportunity outside of election cycles and winning actual elections. Um some of you know that I got a chance to hang out with Summer Lee while I was at Netroots. Really, really dope sister. Like, I, I'm really excited to get to talk to her some more and learn more about some of her thoughts about what does that look like in terms of Pittsburgh and beyond. Um, we had some really great conversations uh, while she was there, um, and she participated in a great panel um, alongside uh, Mayor Chokwe Lumumba and Gina Ortiz-Jones, who's running for Congress down in Texas. So um, there's some really amazing people doing great work out here, as I always say, and I try my best to lift up and show people what's going on. Um, you know, definitely big shout out right now to organizations here in Georgia, uh, Black Voters Matter, New Georgia Project, and Spread the Vote, among so many others, getting ready to do the heavy lift involving not just doing the major push for the midterm election, but really standing at the vanguard of protecting um, our rights in terms of access to the ballot box. And we focus so much on, you know, statewide elections or, um, you know, national congressional elections, federal elections, things of that nature. But really, when we start talking about everyone says get local, get local, get local, but we're really not grappling with what it means to build the apparatus necessary, build our own machines necessary to actually change what does it look like in terms of a county commissioner's race? What does it look like in terms of a school board race? What does it look like in terms of a city council race? Um, recently had an amazing conversation with um, an organizer from Barcelona. You know, a lot of folks have um, followed Podemos and some of the other organizations and all the, the work around Barcelona, Madrid, and really getting into like, what does it look like to build out the type of processes that they have in terms of moving things forward. And really it builds on the work that organizers outside of traditional electoral spaces have already been doing. So 
going to talk more about that over the course of this week. Um, hopefully we'll have some more updates about what's happening down in Randolph County, but definitely, you know, there's a lot of, you know, larger platforms and people who are covering these different news stories, support for independent media, appreciate y'all support me, but support the actual organizers and the work itself, right? Like that's what we really need, not just to share and clicks and build up individual journalists and their actual catalogs, but really it is the people who are, who are driving who are doing this work, you know, I got to go down to Randolph last week because of NSA, who's executive director of New Georgia Project, put out a call to action. I was like, sis, you need me to ride? And she was like, no doubt. And so when we can do those things, even though it might add extra seven hours to your day, um, you can't do it all the time. We're human. We have many competing, you know, things in our lives, but we, we do need to be squatting up as much as possible to do this work, to make sure that our people who are putting their time, their energy, their bodies in some instances on the line, know that we support them. So maybe we can't show up for every action and we can't show up for every meeting, but we can at least show up when it really matters and have somebody's back or have a group's back or organization's back. It definitely, you know, love and support to everyone that's spreading awareness about not just what's happening in Randolph County, but what's happening here in so many other counties in Georgia, including Henry County with issues with redistricting and the, the, the abomination, abomination is like my new word right now, of um, the de-annexation of the city of Stockbridge, uh, which is literally, uh, I think I think one of the banks just sued the new the new city of Eagles Landing claiming that its foundation was, its formulation was unconstitutional because it is removing a portion of the tax base of the city of Stockbridge without taking any of the liability of the financial obligations of the city itself. So there's a lot happening. So this episode, you know, your girl is juggling real full-time work in electoral organizing capacity and also still trying to drop you this truth and knowledge on a consistent as possible basis. So I need your help to keep this going. I need y'all doing, um, you know, helping me do what I need to do and, and helping us spread the word and build out these processes. So this conversation actually took place right after Netroots a little about about a week ago. Um, amazing, amazing, you know, two amazing people, organizer, journalists that I got to talk to. And um, just check it out, like, share, definitely, you know, interact with these folks in a positive manner. Come on, y'all. Just make sure if I ever send you to folks, it's because they're people I respect. And I want y'all to go lift them up and interact with their work don't be all up in their mentions, like, you know what I'm saying, acting up, and then they find out you follow me, and then it's, 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 it's not peace no more, but nah, for real though, we got a lot of work ahead of us, and like, this is 2018, no matter what happens in this election cycle, we still building and moving forward, because it's not over till it's over, and we ain't at that point yet, so I appreciate y'all so much, Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for continuing to like, share, subscribe to The Way with Fanoa. Please, you know, tell tell a friend, tell a few friends, and um, check this episode out. Peace. Yo, what's up? Welcome to another edition of The Way with Fanoa. It has been a crazy past week. Last week, you guys got an episode with me ahead of Netroots, um, where I talked with Kat Calvin, who is the founder of Spread the Vote, an amazing organization working in several different states where voter suppression is king and people have been denied access to votes. They do not have access to voter ID. So her organization is not only helping people get ID so they can vote, but getting ID so they can actually like live life, right? Because we need ID for so many things from renting an apartment, to opening a bank account, to according to Trump, getting groceries. Like, I mean, apparently you need ID to buy broccoli um, out here. So 
really interesting past week. Had an opportunity this year as my first time as a, you know, staffer, org staffer to attend um, Netroots Nation. I attended last year in my personal capacity as, you know, host of the Layla Zanoa and a panelist. This year got to go back as an org staffer and a panelist and some other things. And finally got to meet some amazing people that I've been building with and connecting with. That's, that's like the best part about these um, conferences is, you know, sometimes there's really good content and stuff that you can pick up and things you can learn, but you actually get to connect with people that you've been building with, you know, digitally for quite some time. And so I was really excited that, um, that, that I got to meet this fabulous sister who, who, who grabbed me during our candidate happy hour, like, yo! And as soon as I saw her face, I knew exactly who she was. And I was really excited that we got to build and chat and, 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 and talk and all that other good stuff. So tonight I am joined by Pam Campos Palma, who had this amazing, not only because she's just a dope sister in her own right, but she had this amazing thread, um, I think it was yesterday, on Twitter, just talking, just kind of some, some, some reflections from, you know, folks have probably seen the action that happened. Um, hopefully, I will also have on um, my, my brother Ashton, who is an organizer of Black Lives Matter Houston, who is a part of the action that took place on stage, the final night of Netroots. But, like, you know, Pam not only built, not, not only, like, kind of, like, thinking about that, but also the greater conversation that a lot of us have been having as black and brown activists about what does it mean for it to have, you know, more, quote, unquote, POC or women of color leading movement spaces? Like, I'm just going to read you these tweets real quick, and then Pam's going to jump in here and get this conversation with me. But the first one, you know, I'm reading this is a thread, so there's a lot of talk of women of color leading the movement, from organizing grassroots to, to being overdue champions of change in electoral politics. But you can't flaunt and reap benefits of women of color leadership, vision, and energy and not have the structures of investment and support. Like, this is such so true. We've been talking about this for so long. Like, you know, I supported Bernie. A lot of us supported Bernie. This larger progressive movement, you know, we're here. We're present. You know, we're organizing and grinding. But the fact that we tout the number of people of color who are on the stage but still don't understand and recognize that the fact that those of us who don't have the same name recognition or organizational access do not get the same respect, treatment, and support in the work that we're doing is a very real thing that we need to be discussing and talking about more intently. Next one is, it is irresponsible to position women of color to need to lead with vigor and realness, walk a fine line, deal with tokenism and fatigue, and navigate greater threat thresholds all off their own skin and equitable authority and compensation and bare resources or have to vacate the space. I mean, like, who really stands with us? If you're not some particular big-name person, like, for real, who is really there besides other black women or other women of color standing in the gap with us? Like, a lot of times we're left out there on our own. We finally jump big and do it. And then increasingly I'm seeing leaders of color, particular black and brown women, be forced out of the movement, out of this urgent work that they are so pivotally, pivotally and uniquely positioned to do because they've been used and abused rather than sustainably invested in and built upon, built up around. And then finally, the movement and progressive political space must own up to the fact that higher demands on women of color leaders requires greater investment and power shifting. Power shifting, y'all. Especially when you are unwilling to spread different types of labor around you, but yet still want to reap the ambience and benefits. Now I'm going to bring in Pam. Pam, how are you doing? And thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to be with you. I'm excited to have you here. Like, yo, this was like... Yes. You tagged me in. I was like, oh, my God, all of this is so hot, snapping my fingers. Like, wow. 
So, like, uh, what kind of motivated this? I know what my own interpretation of this was, but, like, what kind of motivated this? And tell me what you were thinking as you were threading these stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think last week being at the conference, I mean, you and I, right? Mm-hmm. The relief that I felt meeting another woman of color in the movement, who I've never met, mm-hmm. but I have resonated, has given me life. Mm-hmm on the internet, right, on social right. media, because I'm so desperate for support, right, right, really stood out to me. And I think generally, um, more and more, I'm thinking, experiencing, you know, I lead, I lead an organization that organizes progressive veterans uh, against bigotry and hate. And more and more, I see that the movement asks a lot of me, um, but then we don't see ourselves reflected. And, and we know that the movement is largely led and owned by white progressives, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's something that I'm thinking about. And I, um, the last thing I'll say just is that when the Black Ass Caucus was on that stage and I stood up uh, on their request, right, when they asked black and brown people to stand up, uh, I got emotional. I felt relieved, right, um, because we need these kinds of interventions. But more than ever, I felt like I hope this is seen and acted mm-hmm, upon. So, mm-hmm. so that's what um, provoked the thread. <laughs> Yeah, so like I said, I can't wait to follow up with um with with Ashton who was mm-hmm. the main speakers who did, you know, lead and take the stage. Um, because like to talk more with him about his own experience organizing. I mean like but one of the things that I need people to understand is like what culminated in that action from having talked to mm-hmm. um, having been involved in earlier discussions, like that is the culmination of the frustration we feel year round, right, in our site. Or in the past several years of actions, I mean, we saw action after action. And one thing I noted after that was the response from the audience was really interesting. And I think mm-hmm. people weren't sure whether Netroots, quote unquote, permitted or gave that space, which they did. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like mm-hmm. it was like, oh yes, here take the stage. There was mm-hmm. that. There was a moment that was seated because you know the power, the collective power, people who came together demanded that that was a space and time they needed to, to voice that issue and concern, or those issues and concerns, and it resonates with all of us, right? But, like, I hear what you're saying in terms of the powerfulness and feeling relief in yourself. And so listening, you know, listening to folks chant and agree and applaud, it was so stark And thinking back three years ago when, you know, a group – some of the same people, but most mostly different people. Another group of folks came together and disrupted presidential, you know, folks who, who presidential candidates who took the stage right in 2015. Mm-hmm. Disruption last year in 2017, and I was a part of that and felt very directly the ire because it was an interruption. It just seemed like almost that white progressives. Like I wonder, like people were talking about how great it was or this, that, and the other. But I wonder, like, I mean, not you and I, but like others. I wonder if white progressives would really be sitting up and taking it had it not been the perception that this was mm-hmm. like, like these, these, these black people were permitted to speak. So it's okay for us to like accept what they're giving us versus had they just taken the stage when a candidate was up there. And there's so much respectability politics that's tied up into who we listen to and when. And when I say we, I mean this progressive movement space as a whole, we think about who gets lifted up and who gets centered and who gets supported and who doesn't. And I think that's one of the things you touched on when you're talking about how when, when women of color are, 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 are encouraged and engaged to lead or demanded and relied upon to lead. Mm-hmm. Talk about Democrats. 
Mm-hmm. So I could have built some of the same, you know, support or, 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 or dependencies within its own space as well. So black and brown women, and black and brown people generally, black and brown women in particular, do get heavily leaned upon to carry the emotional burden and the physical burden of a lot of this work that we don't get the same level of support, uh, uh, praise, or, or anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think that uh, what I felt in that audience that was, I think, more ears up, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, is I think we're in a moment of deep crisis, right? I mean, black and brown communities have been screaming for forever about the high level of threat of, of, of lacking dignity and humanity, right, of violence, right? I mean, I think that um, I myself am still trying to reconcile my feelings of anger of, like, we warned you, we told mm-hmm. you, right, um, and now we got to do the work. But I think that a lot of white progressives have become extremely humbled and are, I think, more willing to listen and act um, mm-hmm. because they've also seen the muscle be flexed by black and brown organizers who, frankly, have saved us, right? And I think that we're also in this... Um, there's been recent conversation about respectability and civility, yes. right? Um, that, like, you know, as, as too many black organizers, black sisters say to me, you know, your feelings aren't going to save me, right? Right. <laughs> um, and I think that this is a moment where folks are starting to feel the threat themselves. And I, you know, there's a part of me that abhors that it has to get to that point, but that's where we're at. And I think that that's why people are more amenable. Um, and we should claim the mantle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that um, I think that works. I mean, like, I mean, I think that makes that makes absolute sense. We're talking about. I do think when people are starting to look at, you know, we, we still have to fight a little bit back against this whole notion that identity politics is bad, right? Like, we're not supposed to talk about those things. But I do think mm-hmm. people are are working through kind of some of those issues, and we're, we can really dig in deep and start addressing the fragility. And so that was one of the interesting things, listening to the response from folks in the audience um, Saturday night. But just thinking about this movement space as a whole and thinking about where we are now almost almost two years post the election, mm-hmm. the person that's in the office right now, and all that right? right? Like, so when we're thinking about organizing and moving forward and, and, and going into midterm elections, I mean, there's a round, as a host of, you know, uh, uh, elections tonight, and we have primaries the rest of the month and going into the general election itself, like, when you're thinking about these demands of not just being taken, you know, and, and it's Black Women Equal Pay Day today, right, too. So when we're thinking, what does yes. it mean for equity? What does it mean for respect? Not respectability, but respect. And, and, and even moving beyond this notion of civility, because I have, I have been tired. Like, even now, as some people wring their hands over Alex Jones being banned, right, they're more upset mm. about some other issues that, that, that are near and dear to, you know, you and I and, and our people's, like, there, 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 seems, there is this intense level of emotional labor that seems to be expected and required of us. Whether our comrades and compatriots actually understand that, um, that's, that's a very real thing. So how, you know, as someone who does run a large, you know, movement-based org, how do you navigate some of those complexities and challenges? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... Um, I think for myself, I've come to the I've come to the terms that we have been born and bred and socialized 
in this mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one, one of the pivotal realizations that I had this year is that I'm 30 years old. I served in the military. I, I've done a lot of things, and now I'm leading this organization. I'm, I'm wiser beyond my years, and yet at this stage in my life, um, I hate the word self care because nobody taught me how to care about mm-hmm. my, for myself. Mm-hmm. People taught me how to care for everyone mm-hmm. else, right? I don't understand healthcare. I wasn't taught to trust doctors, right? They were like cashiers. You go in, you see a different <laughs> one every time. <laughs> and so, you know, there's 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 a part of me that recognizes that the the system has really conditioned me to go from fire to fire to fire and figure it out. And so there's an inherent norm that we're meant to exhaust ourselves, light ourselves on fires, figure it out, and go along. While there's a much different, you know, paradigm um, and expectation with our white colleagues in the movement who, you know, uh, think about their sustainability in a very different way, but also have the resources to do that. So for me, one of the ways that I've navigated it is, I mean, as always, building and and talking more openly about it with other uh, black and brown women in this work, right? And and at at some point, I think it has gotten um, tiring to hear the same narrative. I'm exhausted. I'm fatigued. They want me to be a visionary, and they want me to also be the caretaker and the mama, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so I'm also, we need to be out about it, right? Like, we also need to talk to folks who we know that are in positions and powers and, and call them onto the carpet and say, what are you doing about this, right? I deserve investment. You want me to do this? Then there's a tax, right? Um, and I think we can assert, and we're actually in a big position of power sharing right now, right, um, where folks are amenable to that, but we also need to make the demand. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And, I, I mean, in my experience, Listen, I, I organize folks that are very different mm-hmm. from me. I'm organizing rural progressive white men in West Virginia, and then I'm organizing Boricua uh, Afro-Latinos in mm-hmm. Queens who are Marines, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and I think that folks are amenable to, to, to following us, um, but it's also knowing what we need, right? Right, right. So, I mean, that's actually really interesting, what you just said about you're your at times. I mean, you're, you're someone actually we really should be listening to because you're actually doing what nationally progressives are proposing they need to do to win. When we're talking about what we need to do to win and not catering to the quote-unquote, you know, hardcore Trump voter to see who can win people over, but actually organizing with people on issues that matter across what what could be a wide ideological divide. It might not be. But when you say, like, you're organizing folks in rural West Virginia, shout out to my mountaineers. Um, and they, mm-hmm. you know, I lived in West Virginia for seven years. I always, I find a way to make a West Virginia connection in almost every conversation. I went to Boston, and I lived there for seven years. And my kids, my kids. Dang. My kids still call it home. No, seriously. My kids are born in Columbus, Ohio, but they will tell people they're from Charleston, West Virginia with the quickness, which is hilarious. But um, but that's home for them. My son, actually, we live in Atlanta. My son actually was was trying to, like, scheme and scam the last time we were there to stay with his best friend and their family. Like, he's like, can I, can I just live with them? Can, 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 they just, can I just be their other son and I just live, live here? So it's, it's funny. So I feel what you're saying, though, and I appreciate, like, that perspective. So, like, how do you organize such a large group of people, right, who may seem to have differing, you know, values and viewpoints 
Like how, like, is, is it really that there are just these common issues that we all care about that we can kind of build around and we keep moving? Like, is it, is that really what it is? I mean, I, my approach, uh, when I was in the military, most of the people that came to me for advice were mm-hmm. white men, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was one very isolating for me, but also it was interesting because what I learned in that moment was that uh, people want to be seen and people want to be heard and people want to be held, right? And a lot of folks, they usually, if they don't have a space, um, they're looking for it. And frankly, we as black and brown organizers, this has been our life, right? You can't, I mean, you can't learn uh, a black and brown experience from books. That's something that irritates me all the time in the movement is, well, I read a book, right? And I read another book and another book, and so I know organizing. Our experience cannot be... Uh, is so unique and it makes us, I mean, I I was taking care of children when I was a kid before I entered the military, right? I had an eye, I grew up with Irish Catholic blue collar people, right? As a, as a, as a Honduran Latina. Uh, And so I had no choice in my life, but to work with people across difference, navigate them, you know, uh, combat them at times, uh, have an analysis of them, right? So, like, we understand how to um, not be linear, right? Which is, frankly, what the, what the Democratic Party has, has too often done, um, and politics has too often done, is treat everything as a rubber stamp or, or too linear, right? So, so, for me, I think that I've learned that um, folks, folks want to follow other people, right? Um, and for me, what I've learned is that people might not like me sometimes, but they respect me, right? Um, and, and, and so that's something that I think I bring into the organizing work. Um, and, and vets want a home, right? Like, I can't say that enough. I mean, vets have, two, have also been used as political props. Um, they've also been used by both parties. And so they're excited about this kind of organizing. And my frustration is that it is sometimes um, – I'm not seen, right? Like, how dare or how in this world could a brown woman veteran be leading other, other people, right? Um, it's almost like an affront um, to other folks in the movement. Uh, and so I feel like I, I, although I am doing great work, I'm constantly fighting for my credibility, uh, fighting for respect, and, and fighting for investment, right? Um, and I think that that is one of the things that really also provoked my thread is that I cannot underscore it enough, black and brown women, black and brown organizers, right? We are so uniquely positioned to to win, to do this work. And yet we continue to be relegated as ornaments and tokens. And so, you know, it's not, I I hate the, I hate the term when people say, um, well, we just want to see it at the table. A seat at the table doesn't matter if the person at the head of the table doesn't call on you, right? Or takes your opinion and it doesn't even make it on the docket or affect the agenda, right? And so I think that for me, I'm deeply interested in what does power sharing okay. look like when I'm the one that has to be on the front lines, when I'm the one that is, you know, rallying the troops, right? Um, and I need the support. Um, and I'll tell you on a personal note, um, at the beginning of this year, I was you know, every, every uh, administrative assault that came out, um, you know, from this administration, um, I, was, I was there. I was getting veterans around, um, you know, the assault on immigrants, 
veterans around uh, police brutality, uh, violence, veterans around, you know, different appointees. And I'm speaking at these rallies. And the same thing is that we're going to be asked to speak, right? Well, we need a person of color. Well, we need a trans person. Well, we need, right? So we're the ones that are, you know, supply demand. We're the ones being asked to step in front. And there was a moment when I was um, at a, um, it was when DACA was rescinded, and I gave, you know, a speech from the bottom of my loins, of my soul. Um, and I gave my heart into it, and I thought I was going to faint. And that was the moment where I thought, you know, is this movement going to sustain me, or are they just going to use my anger and, and pick up another brown woman to do this, right? And so it bothers me when we talk about women are leading the movement. Look at this woman. She's on the front line. She's screaming, right? Like, she's, she's pushing forward, and yet nobody's talking about how that woman will get taken care of. And the last thing I'll say is women in politics have gotten killed, right? Like, there is a greater threat to our disruption. And if white progressives don't get it, right, like, we aren't going to be in this space, and they aren't going to win. Um, and so that's something that, that really speaks to my heart um, uh, in a lot of ways. Right. I absolutely agree. Um I, I, did, I think you just said so much right there. Like, no, it's good because, like, we need to flush through and have this conversation in particular and hear from people, you know, like you who are, like, literally engaging and doing this in such an intentional and real way um, because there's a lot of conjecture and we have a lot of these silos, particularly on social media, that are, like, hyperventilating over how we need to be doing stuff, what we need to be doing, et cetera, but aren't really thinking about the real concrete implications to people's work and lives of how it works. And so I do believe that everything you just said is just absolutely spot on and just speaks to so much. So um, just thinking about, you know, not just this past week, looking towards the midterm elections and beyond, like, what, what other, like, any final thoughts or anything you have that you'd like to share? Or just tell us a little bit about your organization, too, because I forgot to even talk about that when we first were talking. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, and so, so my organization, Common Defense, uh, we were born out of 2016, um, and we were at the tip of the spear uh, combating Trump, infiltrating his rallies saying that military veterans will not be props for bigotry and hate. And uh, now what we're focused on is we're electing champions. Um, and we're enthusiastic about electing non-vets, champions that are going to really, you know, build the world that we deserve um, because veterans want a political voice. Um, and, you know, our endorsements, what they mean is that we're organizing veterans on the ground. Uh, we're, we're, we're having them be surrogates, and that could be for a candidate. That could also be against some of these really terrible candidates that we need to vote out, right? Um, so that's kind of what the work we're doing now. Uh, what was the other question? You uh, <laughs> just thinking about going forward into the midterms, et cetera, like what, you know, what are you, what are some about building, mm. as you're building, you know, demanding equity and power sharing, like going forward? Right. I mean, I think, I think for me, it's, it's, it's beyond the midterms. That's, that's my, my, my outlook is, you know, where the midterms are, are here, basically, right? They're only a few months away. What I'm concerned about is that we don't get it together real quick because 2019 will be here and there will be an even more, there will be an even greater tension as we get closer to 2020, right? 
Um, but I think right now we're seeing a lot of energy. Folks are so, I mean, one thing I'll just say, um, you know, we have all these great races. Michigan has everybody like living their best life. And it's beautiful to see the country, you know, cheering for uh, these Muslim uh, champions in Michigan. Um, you know, Abdul El Sayed and Fairuz Saad are, are two of our uh, endorsed candidates. And so that's exciting. But this is also the moment, I think, that we should start investigating what there's a lot of talk of political fundraising. And I see too few black and brown uh, folks in those conversations. I don't understand how we are expected to continue to be the laborers, right, um, to, to carry this work on our backs and not be part of the money purses uh, as well to fund our initiatives, right? Um, we have done the unimaginable, right? Uh, black organizers in the South have done the unimaginable with little to no resources, and it is, it's unacceptable to this point. So that's what I'm very curious about is the folks that are the, the, the leaders and the owners of the big organizations that are tied to big money. Um, the left often likes to say that we don't have as much money as the right. I call bullshit. I think that there is money out there that we could have and that, you know, what is the intentional plan to bring in leaders of color to that forefront so that, you know, we don't have a monopolized white um, we don't have a white monopoly on movement money and, and political fundraising. Um, and give me a second. I had another thought. <laughs> um, the other thing too, that, that, that I'm thinking about that I just wanted to make a point is that, you know, leftists, Democrats, progressives, uh, we want to be all about diversity and inclusion. And what I see as a problem is that, um, the more intersectional we get, the more women of color are expected to be the emotional caretakers, right? If you have majority women of color spaces, they're going to, they're going, they're going to want other women of color to, to mentor them, to lead them. And, and too often I see white male colleagues in the space wringing their hands. Like, well, I don't know where I fit. Like, this isn't really my bag. Like, I don't know how to talk to these folks. Like this allergy, right? Uh, to build it into learning what our community needs so that they can then do that labor and do that work. Um, so, so that's part of what, what my thinking is. And I think that these are questions that, yes, we're going full throttle into the midterms now, but, you know, my organization in particular, like, we, we need to think about 2020, right? Um, we need to be base building in a real way. And that means that, you know, we need money <laughs> in order to do this work um, and do it well and do it right. Um, not just to, to light, you know, mountains of money on fire like some organizations are doing. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so those are my, my final thoughts. And, and I'm just so thankful to you. You know, I am so thankful to so many who I think are, are really kind of, um, like I said, tip of the spear uh, on these changes that we need to make urgently. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I really appreciate you sis, for coming in. Um, I know it's a quick turnaround from when, we, when we've been traveling and stuff, but thank you so much, and I would really love to bring you back and talk some more down the line. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, uh, I admire you so much. I mean, I told you in person, like, you have definitely given me a lot of um, 
your words, your 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 vibe, your spirit, like it it it's one of the things that keeps me afloat, especially when oh, I'm having me, I do you know nothing. hard days. I, so. I do nothing. I'm just here. I'm, I'm just here causing trouble, like and pissing people off. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> well, turning to another amazing conversation, I will let my guests introduce themselves because they're a pretty amazing person that you guys follow. How are you this evening? Can you just share with us, like, who you are and just tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Hi, I'm Torrin Walker. I'm a writer and independent journalist based out of Atlanta, Georgia. My work is centered on social justice, and I also talk about politics. I talk about basically human human interest stories, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, and a lot about protests and about race. That's basically what my bylines are, and that's where my focus is. And not just a writer, a pretty dope, well-in-tune writer, like somebody definitely on the go. Like, um, when I I first started following you, Chuck Modiano was here on the ground um, and was like, oh, you got to follow my boy, da 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 And I was like, okay, sweet. How <laughs> to get to know the other people doing the work, who do more of it, who get to do it more consistently than I do. So I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to talk and chop it up. Like, there's so much going on right now, and, and I feel like, I mean, there's always something going on off, off, you know, humanity would be in trouble, but, like, we're in this really weird moment, it seems like, where we have, you know, this post-Obama, I guess, like, 2016 era, the, the quote-unquote Trump age, and there's all this conversation about, like, white supremacy and, you know, racism that is really singularly focused on Republicans. But we're not really, like, digging in and looking at the systemic and historical issues that that have given rise to this current phrase. I just, like, you had, like, and, of course, you have, like, a whole body of writing and work that you've done, but you had a series of tweets recently, like, maybe in the past week or so, that kind of looked at, like, the deep, you know, social historical construction of, you know, white mentality and white supremacy and what we really need to look at if we're going to truly, like, work to dismantle, like, some of this. So can you share with us just a little, like, of what you were talking about, you know, through that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, about a week ago, I put out a um, series of, uh, it was a short thread, and I was basically talking about how, basically what the background of that was, um, the, tr- the tweets that um, Donald Trump put out about LeBron James and calling him stupid mm-hmm. and a- attacking him basically for, because um, he set up, you know, the school that everybody's talking about right now, you know, he right. paid for it out of his own pocket. He's paying for the parents of these underprivileged kids to go to college if they want to go to G, uh, to get their GEDs if they don't have mm-hmm. them. And I just thought it was fascinating to me because this was a black man who um, goes against all the Republican stereotypes. He wasn't getting a handout from the government. He basically used his skill to create his fortune, and he's using his fortune to give back to the community. And I just thought it was funny that Donald Trump saw that as a threat. And what I was trying to say was, um, if you want to understand why communities like Rosewood in Florida, where I'm from, and where places like, you know, Tulsa, you know, the Black Wall Street that was destroyed by white supremacists, and these were self-sufficient communities who had created their own economy and traded with amongst themselves because they didn't have a choice, but they began to flourish. Mm-hmm. It basically shows you that, to me, the, um, the real basis of white supremacy is basically insecurity and fear mm-hmm. of inadequacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the, that's the point I was trying to get to, you know, and I think that everything that you see that manifests that what we call white supremacy stems from that, from police brutality, 
to economic disenfranchisement, all that is just, I think, white insecurity about having to compete on a level playing field with people of color, especially black people, especially black men. Right, right. Um, no, I think that's a really good point. And, and I didn't even actually even make the connection when you were talking about Rosewood, the personal connection for you. Like, I think just even thinking back to what I've learned about Rosewood, I mean, we all, well, not we all, but a lot of us learned about Black Wall Street coming up and stuff, too. I mean, you know, there's so many stories. I mean, even when you think about the different race rights that happened, what, post-civil, uh, pre-civil rights movement, excuse me, like thinking about, you know, pre-civil rights movement, post-construction, like all the different race riots, attacks, just things like that. Like, there really was an era where black success, uh, economic, you know, growth was seen as a threat um, and was, was totally rejected. If anyone has watched the movie Rosewood, I mean, it's, it's all very clear. But I think that also ties into some of the recent revelations we saw or the recent announcement to reopen the Emmett Till case when you think about the way in which we talk about we talk about that that white insecurity, I mean, all anyone a black man raped or somehow or in a case of Emmett just merely looked at a white woman, right? And it was just mm-hmm. for not only taking away the life of one person. I mean, in the case of Rosewood, it was an alleged you know assault on a white woman, which was totally fabricated. But it led to the decimation not only of an entire town, but several people murdered. Um, you know, like 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 tons of destruction and loss of life and loss of economic property, et cetera. And when we look at these in, in, in totality, right, when we look at the, 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 the havoc that has been wreaked on, you know, black people in this country, slavery. Like I always say, like, when people are like, oh, reparations, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, fine, let's say for sake of argument you don't pay as reparations for slavery. But when you look at that period post-reproduction all the way up through the present, and you look at the decimation of opportunity, like exactly what you're saying, like it, there is a serious insecurity that has driven this need to like remove potential and opportunity from people. That's exactly it, you know. Um, and like I said, I think everything, all the stereotypes about black people, all the um, negativity that has been um, put on black people, I think it comes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about it, look at us as a people. You take some, you take some people from, you know, West Africa. You brutalize them, you know, in Africa before you bring them off across the Middle Passage. The Middle Passage, as we know, was horrific. You know, the rape, the mutilation, the dehumanization. You bring them to a society where you take different tribes and you scatter them amongst each other, where nobody has any real connection. You give them 200 years of slavery. You give them 100 years of disenfranchisement, and you still manage to create, you know, societies and create communities where we thrive better than the white societies around us. Think about that. If you're someone who's insecure in who you are, and if you have the sort of mentality that lets you brutalize these people and you see them still thriving, you're either going to accept that, which America does not do, or you're going to try to destroy that because it it reflects on you. And that's what America does. It destroys anything that doesn't fit the narrative. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah, like, the, the, like I, 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 it, it destroys everything, anything that doesn't fit the narrative. And it also seems like we keep changing the narrative to make sure that only a few can possibly make it through. Like, we let enough... Like, it just seems like when we think about, like, the American dream and things like that, like, the narrative of America does change enough so that it minimizes the potential for the other to become a part of, like, the more acceptable mainstream, right? Like, we think about, like, just, you know, the notion of, like, the house and getting an education. You think about the way the GI Bill and other things, like, played out 
World War II, post-civil rights movement, it's like enough people got in that, that people could point and say, hey, look, you know, civil service jobs, we're diversified, we're doing this. But then we saw almost an immediate backlash when you think about, like, you know, the rise of affirmative action programs and stuff, when you see immediately, not even within 10 years, 10, 15 years, you already have court cases restricting ability of the use of affirmative action, whether it's in education or employment. I mean, we've seen so much of this being restricted in such a way that continues to minimize and, 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 and like you think we were getting at earlier, that really restricts the ability of black development and growth. And, and to some lesser extent, you know, um, Brown and AAPI individuals as well. But really when we look at the relationship of black people to this country, it's so different from our counterparts in other marginalized communities. And, and there's a real need for us to have a conversation that is black-centered and not a generic POC conversation, I think. I agree with that. I know there's some backlash about that sort of thing, but the, the fact of the matter is the black experience in America is unique to any other immigrant experience in this country. Um, there are obstacles put in place for people who are African-American and others just do not get. Now, that's not to say that there's some things that don't happen in the community that we could address as a community, but if you look at the history of this country going up from the time we got here to the day, there have been incredible obstacles put in place for us, and we still managed to cement them to a point. The fact, the, the, the tricky thing in that is, like you said earlier, you allow enough people to succeed in this society to make everyone else say, well, they did it, why can't you? And unfortunately, this is a problem I have with a lot of upper-class upper and middle-class black people. A lot of us have bought into that idea that just because our parents were able to do well or because I was able to do well, then it should be good for everybody else. But it's just that's just not the way of the world. Mhm, mm-hmm. And and I think that also even when we think about, like, those black people who have benefits have been able to accumulate generational wealth or have had generational, like, educational attainment success because especially, like, moving down south and meeting people who, like, have families who've been used for generations and they come from generations of doctors and lawyers, there, there is to some extent that that, that they, they bought into that mindset a little bit that, well, we did it so like it other people. Like, um, I remember, like, after the inauguration when I was in D.C. during the process and stuff, I got to take time to visit a, a friend of my godmother's, and he and his classmates, they're all, like, in their, their 50s, and they're all, like, I, Ivy League black grads and stuff. So funny, like having conversations with them about Chicago and why Chicago the way is the way it is, and how people just need. And there was one individual, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking I'm like, so and so never mentioned that any of his friends were black Republicans, and it was so funny because the person who was arguing me with the most was not the black Republican of the group, which was the craziest thing. And it's huh. real respectability, like if I did it, then we all can do it, and all we need to do is just be good black people, and we'll be okay. And that type of mindset, I think, has of our um, you know, initiatives or efforts to really try to move not just our individual families forward, but entire communities. It doesn't seem like we all have consistently held a unified, like, identity. Um, I mean, we always say that black people are not It's true, but there are, there are structurally, there are issues that there seems to be we should have more concerted collective action around that really in some instances seem fragmented based on who has the power, access, and authority versus what needs to be done? Well, you know that's sort of the that's sort of the curse, sort of like the um, the poison that was sitting inside the Civil Rights Act. In, in my opinion, um, before that happened, 
black people didn't have a choice but to move as a collective because nobody would trade with us and there was nowhere we could really go outside of dealing with each other. Now, that's not to say that there weren't issues, you know, amongst us as a people, but we thought as a, as a rule, as a people, it's like you, have, you always had black success stories. You always had successful and wealthy black people from, you know, business people all the way down to the hood and the numbers runners and all that sort of thing, but they would still pull their money together to put smart kids in college. You had pastors who would, you know, take up collection funds in church to send smart kids to college, you know, and build houses and, you know, and, and loan money to each other because banks wouldn't trade with us until we created our own. What I think happened during the Civil Rights Movement was America told black people that you could live with us and you will take your money and you can spend your money with us. And I think the fact that I think what happened with that was we were so excited about that. And that was a goal for so many of us to be seen as respectable, quote unquote, that we abandoned the structures that we had put in place before that to go run and do that. And we abandoned everything else. The problem with that is every other immigrant group that comes to America and assimilates as much as they can into America doesn't lose their core culture. Mm-hmm. Black Americans, mm-hmm. unfortunately, get caught up in losing ours because we get caught up in materialism and then we think that buying things and being able to buy things is freedom, I think. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that that's one of the other things that we, we – it's like all these things that we have to work through and explain, too, because I think you just mentioned, like, you know, other with immigrant groups. I mean, because even when you look at, like, you know, whether it's African immigrants or Caribbean immigrants, there is somewhat of a structural difference, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the, it's not that conversation of coming, I mean, the issue of coming from a previously colonized place versus, you know, the, the internal colonization and degradation that has happened to, to black people, you know, who have their roots here, particularly, you know, in the southern states. I mean, it's, it's really a different, it's not an excuse. I know some people are like, oh, that's an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's a reality, unfortunately, that people mm-hmm. built into certain structures and systems a certain way. And that, you know, unfortunately, like, people are just treated, people are treated differently as if they're not the same by the system aspects, right? Like, there's this over-desire, especially, I mean, thinking about, like, immigration in general, there's this over-desire to emphasize the quote-unquote good immigrants, right? The ones who are well educated or the doctors or lawyers, as if somehow that, that makes someone more valuable than, you know, their other counterparts. And it just seems like that's like another layer of us to work through when we're trying to build and organize, you know, movement-wise, or even just thinking about coverage. I mean, every time we think about thinking about this, whether it's the DACA fight or any of the deportation conversations, it always revolves around the humanizing of immigrants seems to have their value or their economic worth versus the fact that they're just human beings and their human rights are being violated. True. But then again, that goes back to the history of African Americans in this country. African Americans have never really been seen as anything outside of just um, brute force and just basically unthinking, unfeeling, you know, brute labor, physical labor. Anything beyond that, um, we don't really have a use in this country in the mindset of the white supremacists. So anything that kind of, like I said before, anything that deviates from that or anything that disproves that, like an African American doctor or an African American lawyer or an African-American athlete like LeBron James who doesn't fall into this stereotype of, like, buying a bouncing car and, you know, buy, buying a bunch of jewelry and blowing his money that way and having a bunch of different babies and that sort of thing. Somebody who takes his money and gives back to his community threatens the idea that white supremacy is set up about African-Americans. That's why you get a pushback from people like the Republicans and Donald Trump, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking to my dad about this yesterday, about the whole conversation about, 
you know, the, even just the difference of when Jordan was, in, was was at his height, you know, similar situated LeBron, and, and people often talk about what Jordan did in his view, and when I was like, well, there wasn't really, he was like, athletes were not, like, the level of athletes we're seeing right now, we just did not see from athletes, like, 20 to 25 years ago, and I was like, you know, there was some of it, a little bit, but not really, like, that's, that's the point, he's like, I don't even think it's a fair, like, assessment to say, well, I know, it was just a really interesting conversation when it was like, well, you know, Michael Jordan was just like, you know, a company man. And I mean, there, there, granted, there is some, some valid criticism of Jordan and the way he has gone about things. But I do think that when we're looking at what is happening now with, with athletes and activism, it is definitely uh, harkening back almost to an era that we saw previously, but also has its own different, you know, spin. We're seeing a real... Mean, well, I mean, athletes, I guess, also make a ridiculous amount of money compared to what they used to make as well. So we can see someone, you know, a, a, a LeBron James donate, you know, tens of millions of dollars to build a school and send kids to college and things of that nature where we might not have seen that before. Or maybe we just it wasn't just as publicized as previously, because I know he's not the first person to do this um, from, from that's been an NBA player. I kind of want to, like, turn a little bit now to thinking about Sorry to Bother You. And I know the movie's been out for a while, and you wrote a really... Okay. <laughs> I'm taking a hard turn because um, I've been dying to talk to somebody about this movie who, who not that I haven't seen a few people I have had to talk about it. And my, my, my 16-year-old actually, like, gave me the business when we first saw the movie. Um, but Oh, really? What did she, what did, well, what because, happened? Well, I'll just tell you, so when I first saw the movie, really well done. You know, Boots Riley really did an amazing job. I mean, the acting is really well done. There's, it's visually stunning. It's a really, really good movie. But I left the movie, like, there's a moment, and there's a, there's, a, there's a point in the movie where I felt myself, like, sink down into the chair, and, like, I lost the joy that I had enjoying the movie. Like, I no longer enjoyed it. Like, I just felt, like, really bad. But I didn't realize that's what I was feeling. Like, the movie made me very uncomfortable after a point. Not because, like, it's bad or there's anything wrong with the movie. Like, I, it took me the rest of the day and arguing with my daughter. Because I was like, that movie was garbage. And she was like, what? What is wrong with you? Like, that movie was great and blah, blah, blah. You just didn't understand. I was like, no, I understood it. But what I realized, like, talking through it, well, arguing through it with my six-year-old, like, it was the first mm-hmm. time I was actually made uncomfortable in a very long time. Like, it made me uncomfortable, but not because of anything, like, wrong with the movie, but because of life and the way this political world and the way the world is right now. Like, we're really not that far from, you know, Hawks era and the par- and Parable of the Sower and, and what what was going on in the movie. Like, I don't know that some of the, the more sci-fi-ish stuff that happens is what we're really heading towards right now. I mean, who knows? But at the same time, like, it really drove it home for me. And I was just sitting here thinking, what is, what are we, like, I had a, I had a weekend where I was, well, actually I had several days where I was just because I was just like, what are we doing all this for? What are we wasting our time and energy for? Because, like, like, rich white people are just evil. And their attaches of color are just evil. And they're just like, what are we doing? Like, we're all going to just end up being, like, turned into something we don't want to be in the end, fighting for our little piece of the world anyway. And she was like, that is so fatalistic. I can't believe you. But I worked through it, and I'm okay now. And it's a great movie. But like, and then I well, well, then another friend told me that I was having new new organizer. I was having a new organizer breakdown because I'm also in my first two months of my first full time organizing job, like having left um, all the time. 
So, like, I was oh. like, having all this emotional reaction, I think, to the movie. Because everybody's like, what is wrong with you? Why are you reacting? I was like, I don't understand why the movie was reacting to it so emotionally like this. But it was a very emotional experience watching it. I'm out, I'm out there next week, but it was, like, it was a really emotional experience. But it was really well done. But I appreciated your... Um, like, I don't care about spoilers, so I had actually read your your uh, review before, your article before I went and saw it. So I'm like, I kind of get mm-hmm. the gist and stuff, but I wasn't prepared for how seeing it myself was going to make me feel. So I just want to hear from you. you. I mean, you went and saw it. You wrote the piece. Like, how did you feel about, you know, Sorry to Bother You and how it relates to our current existence? Ooh. <laughs> I know we only, I know we, That's such a I know we only have so <laughs> yeah, I know we only have so much time, but no, no, no. Yeah, um, I know. I asked a loaded question. You're good. Okay. Um, well, I think well, Boots said to give it a couple of weeks before we started talking about it in the public, and then two weeks has passed, so we can get into it now. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was, you know what? I think it was an. First of all, I think it was a technically excellent um, mm-hmm. movie, just from um, a filmmaking standpoint, especially when you know the history of what Boots had to go through to get that movie made. Um, it's very, it's very much an indie production. I know that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of things you see, a lot of the visual, um, a lot of the visual effects you see in it were really done on a shoestring budget. And I think he did an excellent job technically. Um, as far as the um, subject matter itself, I think it is so on point. And I know that's a generic statement, but every scene in that movie to me is levels on top of levels of mean has levels of meaning and metaphor. Um, from the political point of view to just the relationship between men and women to, you know, social, to the social issues, to the labor issues. I think it was amazing, but um, I guess to kind of like narrow it down, I think it was an excellent metaphor that said that, like I said in the, in the review, that this society, the United States, is built on capitalism and, it, and it's built on commodifying everything, including your protest. It will find a way to capitalize on that. Um, now we can get we can get even deeper in that if you want to because um, as we've seen over the past couple of years, you know it's cap you know protests can be lucrative if you're the right person, and I'll leave that you know we'll mm-hmm. leave that alone. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know we you know uh, we all we, come on let's just be honest. We've, we've heard the conversation about how like you know people who were like out in the streets and literally fighting and dying in the streets, you know because of police brutality and because of injustice how they've been kind of marginalized and their protests kind of been commodified into T-shirts and commodified into slogans, but there hasn't been any real on-the-ground action that you've seen anyway. It's still there, but it's not quite, but it's not really, um, you know, it's not really shown like it was. You know, the media has moved on to something else. You know, most people have forgotten it and moved on to whatever they want to do. And I think that's really what the movie was trying to get to. Um, like, do you remember the scene? There's a scene in the movie where, you know, after he goes up to the mansion mm-hmm. and he gets exposed to what he gets exposed to, mm-hmm. you know, and he freaks the hell out. And he tries to go to the media to try to tell everybody the story. Yeah. Do you remember there's the scenes where, like, he has to go to the reality show because yeah. that's what everybody's watching and he has to get punched in the face and he has to swim mm-hmm. through shit to kind of, like, get, this, get his story told? Yeah. He finally gets cleaned up. He tells a story. And the stock of the company goes up, like, what, a billion points? Something, something like, that. like that. crazy, yeah. That's where we're at. I mean, think about it. Think about what you see in, in the in the in the in the society right Absolutely. now. The worse, the dumber you are, the worse you behave, the more you're rewarded. You know what I mean? Nobody really wants to hear about you know 
they'll give it a they'll you know they'll give you crocodile tears a little bit about injustice and everything, but most people are going to say that's terrible and keep right on with their day. And that's sad. Not all, not everybody feels that way, but that's just the way we are. We're so desensitized to injustice at this point that we don't even see it. That we don't even see it. We see it as entertainment. No, I think that's a really good point, particularly when you when we're thinking about like like you know I really. I think about like when we when we share videos like we share videos of like shootings and, and violent encounters and things of that nature, um, whether they're police or you know just like when people, when people I remember I had a friend who was like can we please have a moratorium on sharing like you know fighting videos of people getting jumped and stuff, and like there there is this like fascination with having to see things that has nothing to do with justice or or actually you know. Uh, uh, bringing about, like, equity and change that really is about some perverse entertainment value, whether we want to admit it or not. And like, that whole, that, I think I think what you said is, like, absolutely, like, he goes through all of that. Like, it, and he was, or, it, it already should have been enough that he worried with someone that was, like, internet famous. But it's, like, it's also, mm-hmm. like, it's never enough, right? Like, you always have to do more and more and more. Or there is the... There's a commodification of like just suffering and embarrassment and humiliation. Exactly. That requires more of your soul to be able to get the little the little teeniest piece because you know, he's thinking like, Oh, oh, like whatever was it, like a hundred million people watch that show or something crazy. And yeah. And it, it asked someone someone else I was either reading or someone else was saying this to me that it reminded them of a combination of like fear factor and other shows like that. I mean like that's why I'm watching this, and I'm like, what, what, what really bothered me. And the other thing I realized too is that when I was a, when I was a kid, like my dad's real big into sci-fi and, and things like that, so we used to watch sci-fi. And I used to he he, he like tried to introduce me to Octavia Butler when I was like 13, and like mm-hmm. <laughs> reading the Dawn series is something that gave me nightmares. And so I realized that this actually just harkens back to a thing I had from being a kid too. Like it just gave me like a sense of fear because it was so real. And, like, when it bothers you, like, even with the, you know, like, all of it, it is so real. Like, we are we are a step away from going back to not just the old school company towns, but, like, a, a form of legalized slavery that folks don't jump in talking to me about, like, prison. Not that that's not a problem, but we already have it to an extent, right, legalized slavery. But, like, really thinking about the way employment and housing and we're being pushed to the brink. And, and it doesn't seem like the mechanism that allegedly should to resolve that are going to do anything. So, like, it it, 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 it also seems to grapple with the notion that we can't just passively say, oh, that's not nice or that's wrong or they're bad. Like, we actively have to get our hands dirty, um, it seems like, in some ways, to really, like, move things forward. That's what I kind of think that's kind of what Tessa Thompson's character was about because I've seen so many people like that who are involved in activism you know, they had these ideals, but they haven't really put anything in place to really execute their ideas. Mm-hmm. They kind of like, I'm not knocking anybody, but, you know, they kind of, you know, they wear the T-shirts, you know, they wear all the right clothes, they say all the right things, you know. You know, just like in the movie, she was spinning signs with her, with her political messages on it. That's what a lot of people do, you know. You know, I've got, I got this shirt on, so I'm automatically woke, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not putting, not, not, you know, I'm not really doing anything, but I look the part. And that's what I think that was saying, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I think that's a really good point. And, like, what was really extra interesting, even with her character, right, because even though her character is, like, probably the most conscious, quote-unquote, woke, politically engaged, and definitely willing to put it on the line, covert character in the whole movie, 
I mean, like, Tessa Thompson's character is, like, the crux of so much, and she's, she is, at some points, the heart and soul of the movie, even though she's not directly the main character. But at the same time, it's really interesting even what she goes through to make her point or try to, you know, leverage her artwork and her messaging to get through to people or to make her living or whatever she's doing as well. And it's just like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like I see her and I want to watch the movie again just to understand her more, right? Because even when she's doing her art show, like it was just really, like I was just like, I was like, I really just need to see, watch that scene and be constructed because I'm like, there's so much going on in the scene and she's doing her art show. And which is, you know, a play on. You mean when she's getting, you mean when she's getting hit with uh, bullets cell phones and cell stuff phones like and that? Yes. Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, sis, what's going on here? But like, it's, it's so, so that's the other thing because I'm not a real artsy visual person. So I'm sitting here like, I know what, I know what this is. I know it's happening. But there's something, mm-hmm. there's something else commentary wise that's happening too because, again, she's this really strong, socially conscious person. And she's, like, talking in, like, a fake accent for the white people and stuff, too. So it's, like, everyone plays a role. Because we focus so much mm-hmm. on um, Cash and his white voice in the movie. And I, and even with that, right, with him and the white voice, I think about, you know, so much about us and closing spaces and being able to talk the vernacular of, you know, we're talking about Wall Street reform or whatever and, and then how we have to break, you know, language, code switch, break language, break ranks to come to our folks about what all this means like it's just really interesting because she gives him so much trouble hectic but when she's doing her own show because i want to say for a while it sounded like what a british accent like during her art show or like she, has, she was she has a completely different air about her and she's wearing a mask herself even in the moment of being like the wokest most radical person so it's like the, yeah, that, the ways in which we have to trick exactly white people point into being open in some ways. It was just weird. No, I thought it was I thought it was really well done. Yeah. Like I said, there were so many things that you could unpack from every scene in that movie. You know, from you know, from the labor from the labor issue to the brutality that corporations will use to get the workers back in line is almost like, you know, slavery or slave catchers, that sort of thing. Um how you know, I mean it's just it's hard to really say what I wrote a lot of it in the review, right. but there's so many things going on that it's really hard to do it, you know, and say that this is the point that was the best part of the movie or this right. is what I got from it. There's so much you can get from it. Right, right, right. And definitely, you guys, the link is in the description of this episode, so please definitely check out the, the piece and check out the other writing and stuff this brother's done. Um, it was a dope movie, and like we're in a very interesting time right now, and so now that I'm past my like new organizer funk, I can, I can. Appreciate it so much better because I'm just like, what's the point of trying to elect people? What's the point of trying to do this? They're evil, and the corporate powers run everything, and we're never going to have any. Like I had my little mo- my breakdown moment after watching. But, but like, you know what though? The thing of it is, if you go back and look, mm-hmm. if you talk to any old organizer from the 50s to the 60s, even up until the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s, they will always tell you that it was it was never the masses of people who moved things. Mm-hmm. There were always small groups of people yeah. who moved things. And, you know, and it happened in increments. People have this idea that you're supposed to go up in March and you're supposed to protest and things are supposed to change overnight. Right. And I think that's because of social media, because it gives everything an immediacy. Right. But a lot of things that people are doing right now, we're not going to see in our lifetime. Some things we will, but some of it we won't. And that's something to keep in mind. That we're all on a continuum of history, and what we do now, we may not see. 
but our children may see it. We're all on a continuum of history. I like that a lot. That's actually a really good framing and reference point because there is an immediacy of result in action. And I agree with you. I think our generation definitely, you know, those of us born in the 70s and 80s, I definitely think that um, folks or I definitely don't think we're going to really see the real impact of what we're doing uh, in our our younger years. (laughs) If not, maybe when we're older, but... I definitely think that we're laying foundation, and as much as we can pass the torch and, and, and build work out to hand off, because I think that's another issue, right? Like, because of the way our institutions and leadership were destroyed and were affected by, you know, systemic uh, external pressures and, you know, other things that were done, whether it's COINTELPRO or whatever, like the Vietnam War, I mean, so much destroyed, so much opportunity and possibility, especially when we're talking about black long drugs, like so much external to us and some internal stuff destroyed so much. We literally had to rebuild so much. And then on the flip side, we haven't learned how to use what resources strategically in terms of, you know, um, existing elders and former organizers and stuff enough, I think, so that we didn't have to recreate everything. But going forward, I have a little confidence that at least we're leaving behind uh, uh, systems that are being built out for this next generation to step into and carry out. So the continuum of history, I, I really like that. Um, any final thoughts on our on, on just, I don't know, the meaning of life, what's going on in this midterm election cycle and looking beyond? If I had the meaning of life, I'd be on another plane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. If I had to if I had to tell I'm not I'm not really one for giving advice, mm-hmm. but if I had to if but if I I'm not really one for giving advice to people, but if I had to give in it if you forced me to, I would just tell people to be be as much of you as you can be. And I know that sounds vague, but we're in a society where everything is surface and everything is about image mm-hmm. and you really don't know who is who. And if you know who the core of you who you are at the core and you don't deviate from that, you're going to have challenges. But as long as you don't deviate from that and you stay true to what you believe in, I think you'll be all right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brother, thank you so much for to have this conversation. Following up and finding more time to dig in deeper down the line. But I appreciate you so much. This is great. Absolutely. My pleasure.